one of the biggest themes in my work, which is that space between mm -hmm. um, right and wrong and that space between black and white. And also another theme is that our heroes can be villains and our villains can be heroes. Hey friends, welcome to Field Pod. This is a Field Projects podcast featuring show reviews, interviews with creatives and makers from people like artists to writers to gallerists to collectors, and also just our thoughts on life and stuff to do to fill your time on this earth, whether that's from films or books or daily rituals. I'm Chris Racanello, and I'm the co-director of Field Projects along with Jacob Rhodes, who you'll hear talking in just a few minutes. This is our second episode of the podcast, and today we realized that we never really properly introduced ourselves. So first you'll hear Jacob and I discuss our backgrounds and the backgrounds of Field Projects. We just spent many hours this weekend reviewing portfolio and proposal submissions to our open call for artists in residence at our field residency program. So you'll also find out more about that and about how and why we came to the open call process. Jacob talks about his background as a punk kid and his time in the army, and mostly about his sort of bleh experience at Yale, and how some of the events there inspired him to found field projects. And uh, I also talk about, well, like my background as an artist and academic, but you'll hear more about that in a minute. We also stumble through some of our thoughts on social hierarchy and the gallery system and this idea of a two-caste system in the art world and why we're striving for something in between or maybe outside of both of those models at Field Projects. Then we shift gears and speak with our current Field resident, Stacy Kranitz. Stacy has led a really riveting life, starting out as a documentary photographer who's really tried to live the work and close the gap between the problematic categories of subject and author. We wrap things up with an extraordinarily short list of shows to go see. So now, please join Jacob and I as we chat on a rainy Saturday morning about our frustrations with our pasts and our presents, and stick around for our talk with Stacy Kranitz after that. A quick note that this episode discusses domestic violence briefly and discusses drug use a little bit more at length. So please take care, friends. Hey, everyone. Today, I'm sitting down with Jacob again. Hey, Jacob. Hey. What's up? It's a sort of crappy rainy day. We both feel very, very uh, allergied and stuffed up. So apologies for <laughs> if you hear that in my voice. So last week, I realized that even though we said hi to each other and chatted for a while pretty casually, that I didn't say who I was or anything about myself. And neither did you, Jacob. No, I usually don't tell people about myself. Yeah. Except now you're doing a podcast, so you have to. <laughs> uh, do you want to just say a little bit about who you are and what you do and all of that shit? Sure. Okay. Okay. Well, I have a BFA and an MFA. Um, and between those two degrees, I was in the Army for three years. Um, and before all of those degrees, 
I played drums in a punk rock band and we um, toured around the West Coast. Yeah, holy shit. That's like the most succinct <laughs> description <laughs> of yourself I've ever heard you give. <laughs> I'm from Oxnard, California. Yeah, fucking nardcore. <laughs> Jacob just almost spit out his water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it is the morning also, so... I am not a morning person, so I'm hopped up on coffee for this interview. Um, We are super excited. We're going to interview our current resident, Stacey Kranitz. Yeah. We will dive into talking about that, and she is the first resident who we're going to interview on this podcast, so I'm thrilled. That's why I'm saying interview. Also, she's the first photographer we've had in the residency. Yes. You also got a photography degree. From where? Yeah, I got a photography slash new genre from Otis. New genre. Yes, it's a catch-all. How do you feel about your photography degree now? You take, like, really nice pictures with your fancy iPhone. That's how I feel about it. (laughs) I still think about things through the lens of French theory of the 70s, because that's what they were teaching at the time. Yeah. I, I don't know. I still love photography and I still love looking at and thinking about photography and how things are captured or created. Hmm. Uh, it's going to be a really interesting conversation with Stacy because she is living in the documentary slash not so documentary <laughs> uh, photography world. Huh. Not so documentary. I can't wait to talk about that <laughs> statement you just made. Um Oh, shit. I guess I'll introduce myself. Um, Wait, who are you? I don't know. (laughs) I'm very confused about that question always. (laughs) Um, So it's a difficult one. Uh, Let me try to be as succinct as you just were. I am Chris Racanello. I grew up on Long Island. I am currently still finishing my PhD. I have an MPhil, which is basically the same equivalent to all but dissertation. So in theory, I am just writing my dissertation right now, but I also run field projects. I previously worked at a gallery that showed medieval art, Les Lumineux, and ran their podcast. And uh, I'm a medievalist and an artist. And those two things are make total sense to me, but are very confusing to other people. (laughs) (laughs) I teach classes. I teach at New York City Crit Club right now, actually. I have an upcoming class on Iconoclash, and I'm also giving a guest lecture in Amanda Nedham's online class where she's teaching Drawing 2, which is a very boring title, but I think of it more as like drawing in the expanded field. I'll be going there and talking about themes related to what I discuss in Iconoclash. And Iconoclash is this idea that monuments and sites of public art are also sites of power, often of the dominant cultural power within a community, and that they are sites of resistance. It's a way of problematizing the typical iconophobia, iconophilia, iconoclastic terminology that's been around in art history for so long. So I think the class will be really fun. We're going to run around and look at monuments in New York City together. It takes place in person on Saturdays in the morning. I'll be talking about various different themes and how historical moments of iconoclash relate to contemporary moments that are happening right now today in New York City and how you can talk about that in your art practice. So that's 
that's guess, who, that's who you are. <laughs> I guess that's me. I just plugged my class instead of talking about myself because, like Jacob, I also do not talk about my life that much. I talk about my work a lot. I'm less open about my personal history and life and stuff like that. But as you listen to this podcast, you may gain insight into both of us. <laughs> Things will fall out. Well, we're just uh, awkwardly candid and then regret it later. So <laughs> what did I miss? Is there anything? You're an artist. You're a historian. Uh, you're a curator. A you're, you're, you're a critic. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm a podcast host now. So are you. Podcasting. Add that to our resumes. <laughs> we also paint houses sometimes because none of the jobs that we've ever done have ever paid us a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, last week, Jacob, or this week, really, Jacob cracked his head open while working for someone. Hey. Uh, hey. So. Turns out there was nothing in there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was that was a pretty scary thing. And then I, we went and painted that person's apartment. It was scary for me. It wasn't scary for me. I I cracked myself open before. Jacob posted a bloody picture of his face on Instagram and uh Well, people it, thought it was fake It was like too, so. it was it was like scare porn to all of your friends. <laughs> uh we're going to Most talk people about... were like that's that's some pretty awesome FX, man. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, "No, I it's real. That blood is that red." <laughs> you know, we're going to talk about all sorts of stuff, like people doing crazy shit like that and how poverty means that you destroy your body in a little while with Stacy. <laughs> uh, but for now, I feel like that's a good segue into talking about um, our current resident, but also the residency program. Yeah, we started the residency program during the pandemic. We um, have a space that's equal to the size of our gallery behind our gallery. We had a artist in there for about 10 years and they left during the pandemic. And so we decided to open that space up to the residents. We have an open call for residents and it's a six week residency. We ask that you kind of do a project in that time. And so far, our residents have been pretty amazing. Uh, we're still learning how to operate it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel like we really wanted to use that space as a residency space rather than just like expanding the gallery or monetizing it in some other way by giving it to someone as a private studio again, which was the case beforehand. I think we should talk about in the residency process, like how you developed the open call process in general, and then also the major differences between artist-run galleries and galleries that are not run by artists that are like the upper class galleries and artist run galleries in the way that they've been socially positioned as lower class. We do have a, <laughs> a two party cast system in the gallery system, right? And there's like some flexibility between that. And I feel like we are in this gap and bridge in between the artist run gallery and then the gallerist run gallery, if we should put it that way. And I feel like the open call process has allowed us to thrive and live inside of that space between those two things. We don't pay dues and we don't get a show at the gallery. We don't have a traditional artist gallery space in that sense. It's not a cooperative. It's not a collective. And yet at the same time, we are a collective with each other. Um, we've had many different partners who've been part of the gallery before me. I joined in 2016. Jacob started this gallery space in 2011 with Carrie. And Carrie Oldham. Yeah. And 
I just wanted you to maybe talk a little bit about that because I feel like people are always curious about it and uh, we always have like opportunities for things like fee reductions and things like that. We're currently charging 35 for our open call portfolio review where we sit down and for many, many hours and hours look at people's portfolios and then also same thing with the residency. So could mm. you talk a little bit about how you developed that? Well, the open call was when I came out of grad school. The grad school that I went to only believed that there was uh, one option to be an artist, and that was you had to basically become an art star. And then the people who didn't become an art star, they just forgot about. Yeah, he went to Yale, people. Sucked. Um, <laughs> He's very proud of hating Yale. <laughs> I think that's your, like, proudest thing. <laughs> I have other things that I'm more proud of, hopefully. <laughs> okay, okay. That's, that's true. That's true. I'm sorry. But you are very proud of the fact that Yale is awful, in your opinion. No, it, my experience was awful. I don't yeah. I don't know. It's experience, you know, every time it's different. Well, you had just come out of the army, right? Well, I mean, the thing that shocked me about Yale was, this, which is obviously very dumb, <laughs> is that it was literally an ivory tower in the middle of like african-american city and the all there was a dividing line of wealth and and you know poverty and i don't know they, they just it was so shockingly obvious there and it was so it was such a big contrast and i grew up in california where it's a very mixed bag of people <laughs> and in the military it's also a very mixed group and so i've was just shocked to see this. Did you feel like Yale was very white? I mean, I think they try to do their best to be inclusive, but regardless, it's 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 like the the upper upper class. You know I heard I mean? you once describe the process of selecting other students. Do you want to talk about that? Because yeah. there was like a whiteness problem there. I think that you've discussed with me before. Yeah, so they try to work hard to have all sorts of different voices in their program. Which um, has maybe gotten better recently. It's a different, it's a whole different school than when I went there. What year? What year were you? I was there from 2005 to 2007. So we had a class that was diverse. We had a Christian person, we had a Hispanic person, we had non-binary persons, uh, and it was a pretty mixed group. There was like, I think there was nine or ten of us. And then we had three faculty. The three faculty were all white. Uh, I'm kind of forgetting now who was in the class. That doesn't. I mean, uh, I was just curious about the. Yeah. Anyways, it was a it was a, a a sort of a good sample of maybe a little bit of the of the American world. Uh, and we sat down and we we looked through all of the slides. I think there was 500 different slides or you know applications to. So sorry, the the premise is that we pick the next class that comes in. Our class plus the three faculty all argue over who should get in to the next class. And you know you obviously have a couple things that you're working on. You want to make sure that you're not letting in a total asshole who's going to ruin everything. Um, <laughs> number one important thing <laughs> but also you have 13 different opinions in a room about what it makes a good classmate slash student so anyways we first the first thing we did is go through everything without looking at people's names or ethnicity or anything um, and so it was just a blind read and we got it down to 50 people 
And then we started looking at names, gender, and ethnicity, and it turned out that those 50 people were all white. Somehow, out of, like, the 13 of you who all came from, like, pretty different backgrounds and stuff, it was still just, like, a bunch of white dudes. We all picked this, you know, as a group, white art, basically. (laughs) And there's also a couple, there's a premise of self-selecting groups, that are that are applying right like if you feel like you wouldn't belong in, at Yale you wouldn't apply although I did but I, it's because I didn't know what Yale was really I just knew yeah. it I knew I was in the army and I wanted to go to school on the east coast because I grew up on the west coast and uh, I saw Yale in a movie and I was like oh I wonder if they have an art program <laughs> I now I, I wish I had actually done some research because I wouldn't have gone there yeah. Okay. I feel like also since we're on the pod, Jacob is a white dude. Uh, you can't oh, yeah. see him right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I feel like we should we should make that explicit since we're talking so much about race. Yeah. Um. So then we, you know, all of us were like, I mean, I was like, that's really fascinating that we did that because obviously we've been sort of we've been trained to like a certain kind of work and maybe I don't know white. People are trained to make that work, etc. And so it was just, you know, a systematic, uh, an example of systematic racial problems. So then we went back and tried to make a sort of a more, a wide variety of different kinds of people. Uh, So we would bring that, we brought that element into the discussion. Yeah, and I feel like you're, the origins of our open call process, the roots of all of the things that we like keep at the forefront of our mind come from this experience at Yale, even though the open call process developed a few, quite a few years later after you had done this like residency, what was it? The, no, yeah. The aim artists in the market Mm -hmm. through the Bronx museum, which Um, was excellent, which, which actually gave much more informative than Yale was. (laughs) So do you feel like artists should just like get business degrees? No, it wasn't a business degree, but it was an, an, it was an honest account of what the art world is in New York. Um, that was, that was their focus. Yeah. Whereas Yale was like Jessica Stockholder told me like, oh, I don't know how you get a gallery. You know, I just graduated and I got one. Jesus Christ. (laughs) And we were like, well, how do we navigate through this system or so on and so forth? And they, you know, that's, I mean, that's a hard question to answer, but it's also, there's several answers to that question. And Yale only focused on you either become a big art star or you don't. And if you don't, we don't care. <laughs> you know, and if you do, then we invite you back to teach a class. Yeah. And Jacob is much more, <laughs> I should say, both of us are much more interested in community and sustainability and living a sustainable life as an artist. Less interested maybe in the sort of... Uh, Oh, trendy and fashionable elements of things that you're kind of touching on here. And also the idea of being an art star. You know, like neither of us are super interested in that for (laughs) ourselves. Not that that's a horrible thing to want either. I should say that. But I do think that it's created a toxic hierarchy within the artist community where people can be very cutthroat. Not everyone, obviously. And also it creates, I mean, it's it's exactly the way that oppression works. It creates incentive to keep each other down. And it creates incentive to maintain a hierarchy 
And that's kind of what I was speaking to when I was talking about the hierarchy within galleries. It's the same thing. You know, uh, we talk so much, I should say many people talk about artists and social class, etc. And like the disparities and insane disparities of like the very upper artists within the art world making tons of money while like most people are just struggling along and working three jobs. The same thing happens in galleries, and there's a lot of economic abuse and also power abuse that happens in galleries themselves. And Jacob and I are super opposed to that and have tried really hard to create a model where we're giving opportunities to people, we don't represent artists, but we do ask artists to pay for the open call process because of the fact that we need to keep running somehow. You want so to talk a little bit more about how that originated? Like, how did you start doing an open call? I actually don't know the answer to this. How did you start doing the open call? Well, I coming out of that school and and them basically saying, like, I don't know, they had this, like, magic idea about, like, somehow you make a living and you, <laughs> you also are a full-time artist. The people who actually did well were the people who had either came from money or married combined incomes they or like you know they had their parents set them up with a good job when they got to new york and stuff you know because they had the the time to go and socialize and make the connections and um do it this kind of old school way um and i wanted i was like there has to be some other way of doing that i come from a punk rock diy world where it's like we don't we the audience is the producers who are who also rented the the space to play the shows and they play in the bands and they like there's a there's there's no hierarchy there it just you you can do everything and you teach the person mm-hmm. next to you to do the things that you have learned how to do yeah and, you're still kind of in a band like that aren't you yeah not really but I it's mean, not we're, punk we're yeah it's like you're a, like sad shoegaze uh dreamy say, pop yeah pretty <laughs> shoegaze dreamy pop pretty ethereal yes dreamy <laughs> i think it's great shoegaze. yeah anyways i wanted to have an open call which is just if you're able to spend it was like 25 dollars for the first eight years um you know if you can afford 25 dollars, then we we would look at your portfolio and we tried to to make it so we gave lots of different opportunities for that one open call. So we would look at it for future shows. We would look at it for art fairs. We would look at it as just a way of seeing mm-hmm. a lot of artists and be able to tag them with different tag things that, you know, like, Oh, I liked this one, or this one is about conceptual painting. And this one is, is like about conceptual photography. And this one is just about like the skill of painting, so on and so forth, or the skill of sculpture and be able to come back. And so now we have this giant archive of artists that, you know, have submitted work to us that we have tagged. And, you know, when I want to do a show in, in ceramics, I can go back and pop up. This, Somebody who this you large, flagged as ceramics yeah. that you loved, but who maybe didn't get into the show or whatever. Like, I yeah. love that about our open call process because it's basically an archive of artists that we can reach out to and talk to. And like, yeah. you know, you can't, we have a small gallery space, I don't remember the dimensions. It's like 15 by 12 or something ridiculous. <laughs> I think it's bigger than it? that. But what yeah, is it? no. It's like know. two by four. It's, uh, <laughs> it's something like it. It doesn't matter. It's, uh, it's small. You know, Will's gallery is like two by five by 12 or something. He gets, he gets more <laughs> <Home> attention. <gallery. laughs> yeah. uh, but he is like a window. Anyways, whatever. Our space is not like that. It is some, it's bigger than that. But 
it's true. Like, we can't fit everyone who's making awesome work. So we have to turn people down who do make great work, but who, you know, like we keep in mind for other things like summer shows and whatever. Um, yeah, just future shows. Yeah. Like, on like uh, special topics and, and things like that. And from the very beginning, we've done online shows. Most people actually see stuff through their computer. So. Yeah, lots of people so. don't actually physically come to the gallery. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we have had a great uh, resurgence since COVID has gotten slightly better now. Um, Johanna's show has been really what well, Johanna her. Her show has been really well attended, um, you know, and we've had quite a few uh, pre-COVID-like openings where we have, like, 100 people come into the gallery and then drink and talk about the work and whatever, and it's been awesome uh, to have that again. And it's great to have the residency space as spillover space for for our openings. And it's also great for the resident to have all these people who have come to the opening of the show to come by and talk to them and see their work. Um, it's like a bonus for everybody. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we will continue to talk about our open call process, but I thought it'd be great to give a little introduction like this to explain to people like how that came about, how it kind of came out of the experiences that you had as an artist and also thinking about class and the gallery system. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel, I personally feel really angry and resentful about the way that there's this gallerist's that I've worked with have a disdain for artist galleries and I absolutely can't stand that. And I think (laughs) that it's just bullshit. Um, It is. And it's also like, there are so many underpaid gallerists working and pretending that they're like super upper class, like really wealthy people to attract collectors, but you're getting paid like 30,000 a year or less, you know, mm -hmm. like it's ridiculous. I hate that. I hate the pretension to class to solicit collectors as if your knowledge comes from the amount of money that you have when a collector is looking to you for your opinion and expertise. And I, you don't you don't necessarily get that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it I doesn't mean, come with money, but it also doesn't no. come with schooling either. I mean, sometimes it's like, well, I guess it, it matters what kind of schooling you go to, because like, I mean, somebody. Never, I think it's wrong to think about it through the paradigm of schooling. It yeah. comes through experience. Um, school can provide experience, but many other things can also provide experience, says the person who has been in school forever. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm in the fifth year of my PhD program. I did a master's before that at Hunter. I'm very aware of the elitist and privileged position I have as an academic. And I do not think that knowledge, I don't think that most knowledge should come from the university system necessarily, but I am a big advocate for bettering our public school systems. Yeah. However, it should be available to more people. Yes. And life experience should be taken as experience. Yeah. Um, right. Like you, your life experiences and your ability and know-how can come from working in and as an, an art handler for 20 years. Mm-hmm. If you're an interested person, you probably know a fuck ton about the work that you've moved, the way that you work with that artwork. Like, you could be a knowledgeable person to advise a collector, but because of this weird caste classist system that we have, collectors are not taught to think that way. They want, like, sexy, wealthy people to talk to them about their work, right? about the work that they should buy. And that is not every collector. Let me be very clear about that, too, because, like, I collect very 
tiny amounts of work that I can afford. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't feel that way. Uh, But I also feel like I'm my own advisor and the artist is my advisor because I like a very direct relationship with people that I buy work from. So, yeah. The way that I think about artwork is that I, yes, look at, when I look at something, I want to be beckoned from across the room and then rewarded when I get there. Okay. What is well, a good way to wrap up, like, chatting about... Oh, the gallery system. Open call and gallery yeah. system. Well, I mean, I think I'd like people to know that we... That I have always had another job, whether it was a full-time job or a freelance job. From the beginning of the time of the, the gallery, you know, we put in money constantly to try to keep it running, pay rent, and so on and so forth. And then as time has gone on, we've been able to sustain the gallery, but nobody's yeah, been without paid. bleeding money. <laughs> without bleeding money. <laughs> but nobody's, except for the interns, get paid. And like people who come and do whatever, like curators who come and do oh, yeah. things, we'll pay them. Guest curators. Yeah. Um, we pay everybody we pay else. <laughs> everybody except for ourselves. This, is, this goes to what you were talking about, the, the sort of pretending of the other galleries like i'm i'm pretty open or i try to be pretty open with people and doesn't mean that i'm i do it all the time or like i'm successful (laughs) you know doing it i think that's a that's one of the things about that i wanted to make in chelsea which is a place that maybe a place that was very cold to me as an artist or, or or i felt very different from but i wanted to make a place there that's like a kind of a place for artists and a yeah. place for community. And a place a pl- that felt warm, right? A yeah. place that felt like inviting to artists that doesn't feel like shit to walk into and be like, uh, either the fantasy of, oh, if only my work could be here or, uh, and I also feel like I can't talk to these people who are here. You know, like I just, yeah. and uh, again, not every single gallery in Chelsea is that way. No. There's a, a, quite a few like pretty great friendly gallery spaces that are there. Yeah. But I do think the general feeling walking into galleries in Chelsea can be kind of off-putting. Although, like, eventually your friends start working at places and <laughs> so you feel so like, so hey, forth. you're a guard at blah, blah, blah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, but there is definitely a feeling of, like, coldness that I think we both really seek to combat. And I also think, like, you know, just it's so white. It's so, like, racially segregated in Chelsea um, in terms of galleries, right? There's plenty of people who are people of color who live around in Chelsea, but, like, galleries are not inviting to them, generally. And so it's been a really big part of our conversation the last few years, and I think before I joined the gallery, um, like, how do we change that? And that's an ongoing issue. Uh, Galleries are alienating generally. So, and they're alienating to people of color even more so. So, again, ongoing problem. Um, We're looking for answers and ways of just being, like, more accommodating and better as gallerists and people and artists. And I, anyways, yeah, you were going to say. No, I mean, I, I think because of maybe our own background and experience, we also felt like we or at least I felt like I didn't fit in the art world. So I wanted to make a place for people like me that don't feel socially able in that world. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and plus I'm super shy, I think in underneath all of this. <laughs> and so when I would go to openings, I would look at the artwork, not talk to anybody, then go, then like go home. <laughs> and so at field projects, I'm forced to stay for the whole opening. And it's also like, I'm, it's much easier for me to host and, and, uh, promote other people's work as an artist showing up to a gallery. I wanted to be treated in a way that now as me running the space, I try to treat the artist, which is like, Oh, Hey, you know, like, do you know this other artist over here? You would really like their work. Oh, hey, do you know this curator? Field Projects is about making connections for other artists and trying to further their own careers and social group. Uh, just give them a better quality of life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And I feel like also um, that's a great way to transition into chatting with our artist, Stacy Kranitz, our current resident. Um, because I feel like she's really invested also in giving people more dimensions than the one-dimensional way that they're often viewed, like, on the surface of who they are, right? And these kind of, like, quick social interactions that you have with people, whether it's, like, at a gallery or at a gas station, um, mm -hmm. she's really interested in opening up those quick glances of people and really unraveling their person as an entire being and not just a one-dimensional object in our like society yeah um or thinking about the problematics of that in, within Appalachia yeah yeah totally um yeah. Appalachia centered specifically that's what we're going to be focusing on in the interview um although she's worked on some other projects too um, yeah that we'll yeah. talk to her about as well and we're super excited to chat with her with all of you Stacey Kranitz was born in Kentucky and currently lives in the Appalachian Mountains of Tennessee. She's a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow and has received grants from the Southern Documentary Research and Development Fund, the Magnum Foundation, and the Michael P. Smith Fund for Documentary Photography. Her work has been written about in the Columbia Journalism Review, British Journal of Photography, Time, The Guardian, Liberation, Juxtapose, and the Royal Photographic Society Journal. She's presented solo exhibitions of her photographs at the Diffusion Festival of Photography in Wales and the Rencontre d'Arles in Arles, France. Her first monograph has been published by Twin Palms this year in 2022. So she's also working on a fascinating project for us, and we dive into talking about that. The project is called As It Was Give to Me, or As It Was Given to Me, as you'll hear us discuss in a little while. And that project explores extraction in two different forms. The first involves coal operators who came to extract valuable natural resources in Appalachia using processes that obliterated the land and poisoned water. The coal industry left Appalachian communities impoverished due to the callousness of, obviously, capitalism and its pursuit of profit at the expense of people. The second form of extraction involves the camera. In the 1960s, a war on poverty was declared, and the government decided the best way to end poverty, obviously, is to kill people who are impoverished, and they chose Appalachia as the poster child for the war on poverty. So we get really deep into this body of work with Stacy and talk photography, language, drawing, poverty, and community. So I hope you enjoy this important talk with Stacy Kranitz.
excited. <laughs> We're excited to be here with you. Thank you so much for A, doing the interview and chat with us, but B, also just doing the residency. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. really different work from anything else that we've shown. It's photography. <laughs> Super uh, first crazy. First of all. It's photography. You know, yeah. photography can be art sometimes. Occasionally. You know, <laughs> no, but really, I mean, I think photography is one of the most difficult art forms today. Um, and it's really amazing to have, well, because it's so accessible, the technology to use it and people do use it so often. It is really hard, I think, to stake out a place for yourself as a photographer today. So is that, do you find that true, Stacey? So I, I don't know that I would feel really comfortable moving towards photography if I were starting out as an artist today because it does seem very overwhelming. It is the dominant way that we communicate in mm -hmm. culture. Um, but when I started, it wasn't. So it, it felt much easier to enter and to find a way to, um, to sort of create a tone or a voice without feeling, yeah, like you were in a very crowded space. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think I was also drawn to photography. 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 Photography, because because one, it's like getting close to life, like documentary, <laughs> <laughs> and there's this a certain amount of believability or something like that to it because it is a it's like a mechanical mechanism, right? And then um, and also like me as a creator. I could use this mechanical mechanism to make these things that I can't make with my hand. Um, so if I have a see a moment of something like you know that, that ends up being a photograph, like there's definitely my experience was like, how do I capture that? Like how do I make that? Like I want to go home and draw it, but I'm going to like reinterpret it or something to that effect, and it won't be as true to life as a photograph. It's funny <laughs> that you say that because in photography the conversation is so much about how this truth revealing mechanism is false, and like why are we constantly yeah. Uh, returning to this idea like we can't let it go when everything around us demonstrates that that's just not true um, because of digital technology Be I mean, but even since the very beginning of the forum right the editing that you do the choice that you make in terms of the frame these are all things that start to take this objective notion that we have of photography and turn it into this very subjective thing um, and I think that that mm. is this like constant problem that photographers have to reckon with, particularly documentary photographers, because they're really like kind of smashing up against that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it could be something like you're a very short person and your point of view would be <laughs> that the pictures are just taken from very low. Like I, it, I actually, there is the, <laughs> there's, no, but there is actually this, these photos that I went and saw and it was a guy <laughs> who had no legs and he, and he, he stayed, he was on a skateboard and he got, that's how he got around. And he, at a certain point, he was just like, I was tired of people looking at me all the time. So I started taking pictures of people as they were looking at me to like kind of turn, you know, turn the, the, the sort of the eye back around. I and think so, that speaks to something that I really love about photography is the way that you feel a sense of power when, you know, you may be someone who doesn't feel that power on a regular basis, but there is an agency that that camera gives you, which in and of itself is a whole other problem. Um, and I, I, when I first was very drawn to photography, I was very interested in street photography and I was making this kind of work where I was literally attacking people with my camera. I think that was like the initial sort of draw for me. 
Oh, so was did, the power it gave me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I would understand. Mm. Like, for me, I think it was also a social, like a social thing. I wasn't attacking people, but I was like, I was saying things like, all, hey, like, I can talk to you about photography. Would you like to go make work together and stuff? And it was like a, a, also a way for me to, to enter into, um, which we talked about earlier about like field projects in itself was a way for me to host mm-hmm. and, and be and like be able to communicate to people because I'm mostly shy. Yeah, by, you know. make a space enterable. Yes. Right? Yeah. Speaking to that, I um, was and and would be a hermit. I try to explain this, people don't yeah. believe me. But if I didn't use the camera in the way that I do, which is to engage with people that are very different from me and people that I that are strangers, at least at the beginning, I would just be living in a you know a little bubble <laughs> mm-hmm. and never leaving yeah. um, because I have that personality. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I, I think I would love to touch on community and stuff like that. But before we go into everything, I mean, I personally, Chris, knows this is, I like to start off like just going like, how did you come to art? And how did you, like, what brought you there? Like, some people have families that are that are all creative families. Other people have lawyer families and decide to be artists. And I think this all kind of informs the work. And as you answer that, could you also just say, I'm Stacy Kranitz? I'm Stacy Kranitz. Yeah. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> you still are. You're our field resident. Yeah, I'm, uh-huh. I'm the current um, field projects resident, which is a really wonderful, wonderful gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for doing it. It's a yeah. super huge gift to us, too, that you're um, in our backspace and are here and sharing your work with everyone who comes, who's part of the community, space. as we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful space. It's a really great, great space to kind of think through this work. Thank you. Would, would it be off if there was like six other artists in here with you? <laughs> I mean, it depends on yeah. what they are like. Filmmakers, yeah. <laughs> sculptors, mostly uh, people who have sawdust all over them. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, thank you for doing the residency. But we would also like to kind of share a little bit about like how you ended up getting to this kind of work. So could you just tell us just what Jacob was saying, like about your background and... Yeah, I, I don't come from a family of artists. Um, my, like, not even my extended family. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no artists in the family. Um, my mother is a preschool teacher. My father's a furniture salesman. Um, but I do, like, I did grow up with my mom. She was very focused on arts and crafts in her classroom. And she was constantly at home cutting out weird shapes and objects with, like, you know, colored construction paper. And so there was um, that type of art always around. So, like, a create, like, creative sort of environment. Or yeah, but if I asked them, because I thought what my mom did was really amazing, she would prep the art for these kids, right? So she would put together the different elements for them to then, you know, cut and paste in the way that they wanted to. It's a lot of work. And I was always so impressed with Mm -hmm. these things that she felt like she was just copying ideas from other people. But I I don't believe that. I think that what she was doing was really special and original. And also just the care and the love that she would put into, like, spending all her downtime doing that for these projects that, I mean, you don't even know if the parents are going to hang them up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, teachers don't get paid what they should be paid yeah or, the underappreciation too yeah 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 but I think that not that, and that's really I think the thing that I got from my family was the was the work ethic you know just yeah. that drive and the drive um 
So I really was drawn to this notion of documenting things. That was that was what I first became interested in. So not necessarily being an artist, and I it took me a really long time to understand what an artist was because I didn't have any references to that. Um, I, I talk about this a little bit, but my first encounter with the documentary tradition um, is a bit problematic. It was um, Lenny Riefenstahl. She had written her autobiography around like when I was like 16 or 15, and I had saw it at the bookstore. It was just out on one of those yeah. display tables, and I was like, what is this? And I started reading it, and this like, very arrogant woman was like talking about this insane life that she had lived, being like a modern dancer, to them being this... Um, this um, mountain film star and then she's like yeah. Hitler's BFF and you're just like oh wow this is this is wild and you know I I'm of Jewish heritage and I think that there was something about like being interested in this woman who was sort of maybe not it was kind of taboo to yeah. be interested a in a dangerous her. person to be interested in yeah I think I was drawn to that so always very drawn to these kind of transgressive or like mm-hmm. what someone tells you is wrong I just always felt like I wanted to enter that space, mm-hmm. um, so I I bought I bought the I bought the autobiography, which is like massive, and she is just so arrogant. But she, but I just love her love of herself because I grew up with my mother is very um, self-deprecating and like yeah. doesn't have a great sense of self, and I inherited that, and so kind of seeing this woman be so in yeah. love with herself was really mm. interesting to me as well. Yeah. Um, and also this idea that you could be many things, right. right? You could be a modern dancer and then you could be this and then you have this. And you know, it is undisputed that she is and was a truly great filmmaker. So all these things that are so problematic about her, um, you, you really can't dispute that. And I, I, just, I just found her an interesting role model. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, an entry point, it sounds like, right? Like yes. really, yeah. Um, and I also think that it spoke to and speaks to one of the biggest themes in my work, which is that that space between mm-hmm. um, right and wrong and that space between black and white. And so, and also another theme is that our heroes can be villains and our villains can be heroes. Uh, and I, I've always been really interested in that idea. Um, and so that was my jumping off point. I wanted to be a f- documentary filmmaker mm-hmm. and then I went to NYU and I immediately realized that if you're making films you have to work with people and I just don't I'm not good at like orchestrating or directing so um so then I quickly shifted to photography um mm-hmm. and then I never really turned back because you, you you also don't need to raise all this money to make photographs it's not a cheap medium but it's nothing in comparison to film and you can actually immediately go out and start making the work and you don't have to spend all this time in the editing room to, yeah. to see that work or to yeah. receive that work and then present it to people and I think I found that really um, compelling and, and it just fit my personality better. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's a solitary in a sense thing too, yeah. right? You go out in a certain sense, like this is real, very old but you go out into the field, you get something, you come back and then you sort of, the, the art about it or whatever can happen by yourself in a room, editing photographs, going through, you know, putting together the story that, or image that you're looking for, right? Yeah, and that does really, it really suits my personality. And so I, I 
made films um, later and you know after I spent a lot of time working in photography and, and um, but I also like waited till the technology was available to really where I could make them on my own yeah <laughs> um, and um, but still I think that um, photography is my preferred medium and it really wasn't a, considered a very popular or compelling medium I believe until strangely enough social media mm-hmm. um, yeah that's an interesting question how much do you feel like social media has kind of changed the landscape of photography? I think it opened up a space where um, images could be a dominant language for communicating things. Um, and I'm sure there's other forces at play, but I think now when I see this like newest generation that grew up on social media, I feel like they see being a photographer as this like really like wonderful way of communicating with the world and that mm-hmm. I do not remember people when I told them I was a photographer seeing what I did in that mm, way thinking about it as communication yeah 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 there's a potential like other arts seem to be like painting like this, this yep. art yep. that had all these expressive possibilities mm-hmm. well I asked I wanted you to like talk about that a little more because Jacob made such a fucking frowny face at you about, or whatever you were and I think you were maybe thinking of like the vernacular photography movement or something like that yeah, like previously but, but also but, I, yeah. no I, 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 well, I was also just thinking about my own experience where it was like film was the language of the people so to speak you know what I mean it was like it was like everybody could go and see a film or you know watch mm. something on TV mm. or something they had like access and mm. and that was the sort of dominant art storytelling but then you're right with um, Instagram memes and like there, there's all of this there's the language of photography has really become exploded yeah be, yeah and I, I just didn't really think about that because I've always thought in pictures and stuff like that like probably a lot of artists and stuff <laughs> but yeah, that's, yeah that is yeah, yeah. that's fascinating more as like a cultural force than even necessarily like within the arts where yeah. there's yes. other yeah, yeah. issues um and I feel like it's kind of exciting to have like been in this movie that like kind of was marginalized or like not yeah. that interesting or exciting to people and now it has like a very significant role in culture yeah definitely yeah you know I feel really like a lot of kinship with what you were saying about villains are heroes, heroes are villains. Um, It's sort of the circuitous route that I took to becoming a historian is very related to like a lot of the sentiment that you bring out in that. And I think there's such a tight relationship between this like impetus to want to deal with the idea of truth and photography and being like entering photography through wanting to document and the kind of route that I took to becoming an art historian (laughs) and like my dissertation even is like kind of dealing with unpacking the complexities of historical figures in the medieval period and like thinking about the difference between what's happening in their mind versus what they physically left behind and trying to unpack how different those those programs are and the fullness of people in history is just so difficult because we want to reduce Jake and I talked to each other this morning about this I don't remember if we recorded it or not (laughs) we we were talking about like people are so much bigger than the one-dimensional view that we often get of them right it's so and it's because we need to communicate quickly right we reduce things because it's like how do i understand this person okay they do this this and this like identity politics done i have cataloged and boxed you there's so much more than that and i feel like your work really really strongly is like 
on that side, <laughs> which is also the side that I am on in my writing um, and my artwork too. But like, I think... I mean, not to make it a binary thing, but... We're on the same side. No, I know, and I'm I'm actually doing a bad thing right now. Like, there's only these two things, but but there is there is like an attitude I think of yes. um, simplifying, a, a, right? Of reducing and simplifying things down, which is totally understandable. Our world is fucking giant. We have only so many things we can like read or watch or focus on a day, yep. but at the same time, it really minimizes people um, to make them heroes or villains. And I think that's a really special part of the book that I really enjoyed. Maybe we won't totally go into talking about the book right now. I don't know. Yeah, so I would love to know more just about, aside from just the origins of how you got into doing photography, like what kind of led you to this? And it's totally fine if you don't want to answer this question, but if there is anything that stands out to you that led you to this desire to investigate these kind of in-between characters like the in-betweenness of people who might be seen as extreme or like the loving nature of someone who's seen as being like an unloving person or things like that right like because that's a lot in the book too the quotes that you've chosen they're very complicated and like some of them are really funny <laughs> and you put it together really well that way I thought where it was like very intense and there's such an intensity to every single to everyone, quote, yeah. every quote. In different ways. Yeah, and every photograph and every leaf and flower and spider web that's in there, you know? Like, I really, like, the way that you composed it, that was really great. Um, yeah. I know, I'm making you laugh. Okay. <laughs> so maybe a, a good way that we can we can tackle that, because... Yeah, I asked a really big, broad question, yeah, so please make questions. it, reduce it for me. <laughs> well, um, I think we're, we're going to talk more about those ideas, but maybe we can talk about the book... And we can say, like, why you broke it up in the way that you broke it up and where maybe some of these... Yeah, or, like, where the project started. Well, can I go back? I would like oh, to yeah, go yeah, back yeah. to one question. That yeah, asked, definitely. I, I do think it's really... It, it helps people really understand um, that sort of main thesis that mm -hmm. all of my work, the umbrella, which all my work is under. So when I was growing up, I grew up in a really... Um, and Jacob, we've talked about this, a really violent home. Um, my father was a very abusive person, um, and he and my mother are still together, and so the abuse lasted for so long. And so I, I think my father was a very good person and a very loving person, but he was also a monster, and he forever sort of shaped some very dysfunctional <laughs> behaviors yeah. in me and in the way that I understand and feel love and loved. And so I really struggled for so long trying to understand how my father could be both things. Um, and I think that it was like really important for me to work that out. Mm -hmm. And so that is how this work all started. And the original work that I started doing all my early projects that you know then led to the work I'm doing now um, were about this idea of violence as catharsis. Yeah, I was really interested oh, yeah. in creating a redemptive visual representation of violence, um, and and really obsessed with it. And so I went about doing that in a lot of different ways and different projects. And then eventually I became interested in. Um, the failure of documentary photography as this objective force. And, and so then it's sort of, there's a lot of violence still in my work, which I'm sure you yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> felt. Um, but I did kind of move on to thinking about just the documentary tradition in general. But, um, but yeah, the, the good versus evil and the um, heroes and villains stuff, that's all comes from my childhood. And so it's very deep. Yeah. No, I mean, 
I feel like that's such a important aspect of understanding like where your work came from and what you're doing um, or how and, you... and, and how it's changed too and like how you've grown through focusing on that and thinking about it. Um, and that, I, looking through that lens at, at the individual photographs too, I, yeah. think, I think is, is it's, important. It's really fascinating. And I mean, yeah. I keep thinking about like, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about violence in art recently too, and how painting has really failed at representing violence well, especially like representative painting. There's something you can represent violence through like material process, but looking at a painting that has blood in it versus looking at a photograph that has blood in it is different, right? Like yeah. there's such a massive gap there in a lot of ways and there can be violent paintings, but it's just like such a very different thing. And like you can make a photograph of a spider web be violent, you know, and it has like a real violence to it. And it's, I think, just more difficult to capture that in painting. So I feel like you chose a very, like, a great medium to explore that question. Um, I'm talking about painting because I make paintings. Let's just be clear. <laughs> I'm a painting supremacist, but I'm not because I also am very against the idea of painting supremacy. Uh, <laughs> you seem to be against most supremacies. <laughs> I mean, whatever. But anyways, um, I really appreciate knowing that. And because I don't think I was involved in that conversation that you were both having. Um, yeah. So that's what led me to Appalachia. I mean, I feel like it's, um, you know, I am not Appalachian. Um, I, I live in Appalachia now, and yet I've spent the last 12 years making a very extensive body of work about and in this place that is not my home. Yeah. Um, and so I do like to explain how that all came to be. Um, it's not, uh, it's just a very practical story, but I do think it helps people a little bit understand. Um, yeah. So I, I went to this place, this dystopian compound that I had read about. When I was very young, I read about this place and I was very enamored with it. And I always knew I wanted to go there and photograph, but many of the places that I get really interested in, I learn about and it takes a long time till I actually yeah. you know, end up being able to, to spend time there. And so um, this place is, is sort of known in popular culture called Skatopia, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I uh, just refer to it as this um, dystopian compound. And it isn't, I wouldn't say it's particularly Appalachian, but it is in Appalachia and so I was going there and um, the reason why I was going there was because it was a place where young men behaved very violently mm -hmm. um, towards each other towards themselves mm -hmm. and so it was a great place to go and kind of document yeah. that and they were doing it to get out some sort of dark energy and it's a dark energy that I felt very connected to and so I really wanted to sort of revel in that energy and see how I could then create images that mm -hmm. and uh, is this where you attack them with your camera I mean, I, I the, the attack, the camera attacking work is much earlier. earlier. Okay, um, I thought so, but yeah, I just wanted to clarify. I, when I, by the time I got to Skatopia, I was just fetishizing young boys. So it was like much, much more tender and loving and sexual. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was there and then I was like, oh, I'm in this place that is um, kind of about this place that is known for poverty. And I was like, what does that mean? What does that look like? And so I decided to just start traveling in the area. 
and it was at the same time. So I, I've had this career, um, and this is related to the art, um, and then not related. Um, I've had this career, so for, like from the moment I walked out of my undergraduate education, I started working in ma magazine and newspaper photography. Um, I was very interested in being a photographer, and that would, mm -hmm. like I wanted to be an yeah. artist every day, like so this was a way where I could have the practical kind of aspect I could make some money um, although the industry imploded <laughs> and it's been a long haul but, um, but it was a way that I could write very quickly there was a practical application to photography that you know is a little bit more challenging in, in certain other arts and that I could go out and start being an assignment photographer I did that right away and and so by the time I had gotten to Skatopia to make this body of work I was feeling a grave amount of fatigue yeah. about this industry that I had chosen and that is very normal right you leave you go you have this idea of this fantasy mm -hmm. of this career that you want to have and then you start um, participating in that career and you realize how deeply problematic it is for so many different reasons and one of the things that was really frustrating to me was that so I consider myself a photographer but I was doing a lot of photojournalistic work and there's these sort of ethical kind of constructs that you're you know supposed to abide by when you're working for certain organizations yeah. and I found them very dishonest um, mm. and I was getting very frustrated with that disconnect um, and I as an artist felt like it would be really really it, it just was important and I was like moved in this direction to where I really needed to make a body of work about that. And so that is how Appalachia became to be so appealing to me because it had this extensive history of, it, it was it's a place and was a place where photography caused a lot of harm under the guise of doing good. Yeah. And I found that so captivating. Hmm. And so that was my departure yeah. point. And you wanted to like make an intervention on that history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so that's how I ended up in Appalachia. Um, and, and I, I like to just kind of explain that because one, it's not such a spectacular story. It's just a very kind of, you know, it's just someone moving through their life. Yeah. And I think you were, you had, you've lived in a lot of different places, right? Mm -hmm. and, I have, yeah. And then that everything kind of clicked together then also at Dystopian Skate Yard. <laughs> um, I mean, no, I mean, I, I didn't know that I would be spending so much time on this body of work. Uh, okay. It was just the thing that I was moving to next. next. Um, I think that the, the work about violence, um, I had done like three or four different projects. Um, I, I really valued that work, but I, I wanted to take on something a little bit larger, more systemic kind of oppression or something that was just um, more deeply entrenched in culture and history. Um, and so Appalachia, I didn't really know much when I started traveling around and making photographs. Um, so I have a couple of questions just to, to remind a little bit, but um, you, I think you had told me that you were basically living from place to place for a while, doing jobs and going and going places and like sort of living this laissez-faire <laughs> something that had that effect not laissez-faire itinerant itinerant right like yes. you were kind of moving around okay, thank you. and <laughs> it was very migratory and you were like really I mean you were this doing... is I have so much respect for this that you wanted to invest yourself in the communities that you're photographing um, but also like that you just made the decision to be so dedicated to being a photographer that you were like weren't you living in your car for a little while and like I don't know if you want to talk about that or not you don't have yeah, to yeah you don't have to also 
Uh, no, no, I ended up living in my car. And again, this is not van life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A car uh, um, for three and a half years. Um, but I was doing, um, initially I was doing these um, stretches of time for four months. And so I, I did go uh, right around the time when I started working um, in, um, in Appalachia, I, I started my MFA. I, I was very, very frustrated with my career yeah. as an assignment photographer. And where did you, I'm sorry, the MFA was where? Uh, UC Irvine. Mm-hmm. So I started, I would go to school for eight months and then I would leave for the four month long summer. It's hard, to, I mean, okay, there's a lot of things about that. One is, that there's this whole history of people who should have been publicly shown. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> and somehow yeah. are, you know, still have careers, you know, <laughs> I mean... I and think then, about those people when I'm being publicly shamed. <laughs> I get bitter. Yeah, so yeah. I know you're you're saying something that's very true. <laughs> but then it's also I think now there is a there is a, a sort of an easier way to publicly shame people now, right? That's true. And um, but I do also think that there's hopefully more information out there about what is going on and available information. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like yeah, about. I think so, and I think that's a constantly evolving thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm sort of like I, I want to say like oh I, I don't think people should publicly shame other people because I think it there's a lot of problems with that kind of behavior. But there are times when I am aware of someone being publicly shamed and I <laughs> I, I think it's inappropriate <laughs> uh-huh. which goes back to this idea of like right and wrong and black and white is that I I make work about that because I'm constantly fighting it in myself yeah mm-hmm. um, and so it it is also this way to keep myself constantly like kind of deconstruct myself and my own sort of like tendency or the human tendency towards right collapsing things and simplifying them and um, reducing them to yeah yeah and i was going to say also that that goes directly back to language like that is the structure of language is that we were like we both agree that this is orange we're going to use the word orange to talk about this from now on yeah and it's not like the nuance of orange. <laughs> and I yeah. think photography is loaded down with that problem as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be used to like open up ideas and thinking, but it can also collapse and close down. And that's one thing that I find so interesting about photography mm-hmm. um, is that it's like a slippery slope, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's the line that you are sort of writing throughout all, all of your work? I, I, I think work? so, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I agree. I mean, I obviously I'm less familiar with your earlier work. Um, yeah. But I mean, even just looking at like, we're sitting inside of the residency space with you right now and like looking at all of the photographs you have pinned, meticulously pinned to the walls, by the way, at least on this wall. Oh, this one, this one. This one, there is tape. That looked orderly uh, just for my own sanity and then the rest could be complete chaos. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But even just looking at all of these, like you see that so much in here. The thing that I really wanted to touch on is what you were just saying about black and white thinking. Um, and how trauma can make you really prone to black and white thinking because you're trying to like quickly understand the situation that you're in and what you have to do. But that also makes you really aware of like your position in relation to people. And I think that there's a route that you can take that will take you to the route that you took, which is like, oh, I, I see my father not only as hero and villain, but also like he's, an, he's a both and, like there's even more going on there. 
And so even though like the sort of fight or flight mechanism and the little lizard part of your brain is like going off sometimes and like reducing things down to a really black and white experience, you can begin to also use that to like see yourself in the position that you're in in relation to everyone else. That's helped me like open up the world to myself and try to not have such a black and white thinking process. So this is when we start talking about Scientology. <laughs> please, please, please. Take me. I did spend some yeah, time yeah, in yeah. Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the vulnerable state where you're in between, you're like trying to reteach your thinking process and then you join a cult. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but but I do think there's something there too, like in the way that you're so like that you're so interested in inserting yourself into or like joining just like different groups of people and coming yeah. to understand them. Um, there's like a lot of vulnerability in that. Like it takes a lot to be like I'm gonna go to this dystopian skate park and like hang out there and meet people. And did you? How did you end up going there and anyways? Young boys. And fetishizing <laughs> young boys, which I am totally fine with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just going to leave that alone. Um, so, <laughs> But I, you had touched upon this before about the kind of, um, through your, your family and your, your parents, how you had this tenacity. Drive. This yeah. drive. Yeah. And I think it takes whatever that is inside of somebody. It seems like you were interested in going to see this, see and experience this sort of violence, but also this like, Male dominated violence, right? Mm -hmm. Like skate parks. The macho ness. Skate, yeah. It was a very male male dominated space. Yeah. Yes, it was like um, seventy to to ninety percent men, um, and probably still is. Um, so most of the time that I'm there, I mean, it's involved in a lot of different ways. Um, I still go. Um, I'll be going this summer. I, cool. I go at least a couple times a year. Um, oh wow! Yeah. Yeah. Continue. So this has been... I've built a lot of really close relationships through this place, so it's a very important part of my life. And so returning is a chance to connect with people that I just really, really care about. I, I think one of the greatest pleasures in my work is the, the long-form work, which I didn't necessarily think was something that I was yeah. going to be doing, um, but is that I, I get to develop um, these deep relationships with people. And so returning to the work is sometimes not even about making new work, but just about kind of um, catching up with people and just spending time. The, I, I got really interested in this idea, um, again, around this one time. I should I can give you like a date. It was 2009 when I had this, you know, just full-on crisis of what I was doing um, mm -hmm. as a photographer and sort of looking to make work about problematic relationship between subjectivity and objectivity in the documentary tradition. But I um, I was really interested in this idea and continue to be is that I, I wanted to have the an equal sort of playing field between like the friends that I made maybe like in something like art school and the friends that I made in the work itself. Um, and I didn't want there to be a hierarchical difference. And yeah. so I've, I've spent a lot of time um, really trying to develop relationships where there's a real mix of yeah. different you know, types of people in my life and they all kind mm -hmm. of have um, that, that intimate close circle of people um, is um, both subjects in the work and, and also people from the outside that I've, that I've known, like childhood friends and yeah. friends from school. Yeah, people who are not artists, I think often encounter artists as something painful like I've had this experience on Long Island with people when I tell them that I'm an artist that um, there's a sort of awkwardness and like an a like what do you do with your life and your time and oh you must like there's this also presumption about like you're in I mean I encountered this with academia as well this like oh well 
you think you're smarter than me. There's like a lot of pain encountered in that. And I find myself thinking like, how do I, as an educator and an artist and an academic, like, what do I do to break down those kind of barriers? Like exactly kind of what you're talking about where there's this like experience of different social structures and I'm embedded in like many different communities and how do I make people feel equal amongst everyone and like I I don't know this is just an ongoing problem that I find myself dealing with a lot that is and how do you make someone feel comfortable like with another person it's just it's all about like embedding in the community itself which I think you're kind of you're like answering through your work and it's like Mm -hmm. slow long laborious work and it's like (laughs) community but it's also like fun and loving and like it's about really being like I take I take you seriously and I want you to take me seriously and I also want us to just feel that we can hang out and talk to each other but I feel like I haven't come to a good answer for this question. Um, well, I mean, Stacy, it seems like you're saying this commitment in a certain way yeah. is is it's like one, a durational is one way, or at least address that. Right? You're like, I'll be back, and then you, know? you go back, and yeah. then you go back, yeah. and then you're like, yeah, and you. Are, I imagine that you're you, you're sincere with them, and you. I'm putting words in your mouth. So well, I, you make I should... the same mistakes you make with your closest friends, right? Like, yeah. Um, right, because. They're also hmm. your closest friends, so I've made a lot of mistakes with um, people that, you know, I guess you could put quotes around that, that word of subject, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and so um, yeah, so, there's a real fuzzy line there, but yeah, yeah, and there, but, so there's no like seamless yeah. sort of way that I I don't I I try very hard to sort of create that open relationship with everybody, but as a human being, I sort of fail at mm. it all the time, um, so I'm constantly failing all of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> but in different in different ways, right? Because in different like, ways. <laughs> because you're, I mean, you're and failing constantly. Yes, <laughs> but in different ways. So don't even don't even stress about that. But it just seems it just seems so hard to have such a porous life and job, right? Like, because the things that I, the, what I'm talking about really too is like if you build rigid borders around like what you do then it's impenetrable for people. Whereas like you've done this pretty amazing thing where you're like, I'm kind of living the work. Um, it's very important. To yeah, me. yeah. Yeah. Um, I think part of the reason why it's something that I can do is because I don't have dependents. I don't have a family. I'm not close to my, my immediate family. So I am kind of drifting out in this sort of world mm-hmm. um, on my own and so it, it does allow me to do that and I think people who do have children and who do have a lot of responsibilities to their immediate family I think it is harder for them um, just because you have to prioritize mm-hmm. those things and so I don't I, that's a, that's a luxury it's a choice as well um, so I guess it's not a luxury it's a choice that does allow me to move through the space in that way yes mm-hmm. I mean the only thing that I have that is like incredibly significant to me is this dog who I just abandoned to come here. Oh no! <laughs> My dog's oh, being well taken care of. Oh no, it reminds me of the Chihuahua story in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yes! Oh my god! Oh, Look at your face! The Chihuahua it's so good. I mean, it's so sad. It's, it's such so a good. fragment. Yes. Oh my god. Well, all of the, We have can, to talk about that yeah, in let's, a minute. Let's talk about, 
<laughs> so what it, can you just tell us the, the like title of the book and, a, and like a little synopsis of it just for everyone who's listening? Um, so the book is called As It Was Given to Me. It's actually As It Was Give to Me and then it has the end. Parentheses. Yes, bracket. Mm-hmm. So As It Was Given to Me. Um, and Wait, it, why does it have the brackets? So um, I it, love the brackets. Oh, of course yeah. you do. You're an academic. All <laughs> academics love brackets. No, it's because I'm like an artist academic. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true, though. Yeah, That's so true. I know. So um, it's a, the title comes from a newspaper column called As It Was Give to Me. And it's the way that um, people speak in a certain part of Tennessee oh. in Appalachia. Oh, I didn't. Okay. And yeah. so the, the, the um, column is about stories, like local stories. Yes. Um, and so, um, and I really loved the column and I loved the title, but then I was like, oh, but I'm the outsider. And so I would say as it was given to me, mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't say as it was given to me, that sounds strange and it feels strange. So I thought mm. how, how wonderful to sort of represent that insider outsider complication yes, yes. in the title itself. I love that. Um, and it's yeah. also like that phrase can be said with so many different punctuations too, like, cause it could be as it was give to me or like, you know what I mean? Like, cause uh, that sounds like very, um, like neo-pagan or whatever like (laughs) you mean yoga no no i mean you know yes yes. as it was so it would be whatever like phrases but as um, below yeah yeah uh but i don't know like that that goes back to the conversation about language and photography and the kind of like just misinterpretations and questions about truth and what something means I think too like the the title immediately opens that up and I was already I had I did not know that it was directly the name of the column for some reason I missed that but I got that already just from the title like I can I can see the kind of navigation that's happening with those brackets which is why I said I love the brackets, not actually because I'm an academic and they're brackets. It's both and. It's and. It's both and. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) Um, Anyways, so I really enjoyed looking through the book. But also Um, that's a great title. It's a great title. I think you're right. That totally does work. And I didn't understand exactly what it was, but I did feel I was like give and given. Like, mm-hmm. yes, there's, and we had a conversation earlier about the holler, right? Mm-hmm. But which I would pronounce the hollow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, or in the parts of the world mm-hmm. that you're traveling in, it's pronounced. The holler in the hill? It's yeah. spelled the hollow, mm-hmm. um, so H-O-L-L-O-W, but it's pronounced holler. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's endlessly confusing to everyone. Uh, but yes, that's, um, so much of Appalachia would call it a holler and then there's like you know people there's a lot of mythology around that notion of the the holler but really what a hollow or holler is is just um this sort of winding road that like kind of dead ends in the mountain um, and it usually runs along a mountain Mm. stream Mm -hmm. okay so it's not like sleepy holler like sleepy hollow never mind Yeah, no, just okay. dead eyes and I know, both I know, of us are like, know. what are you saying right now? Okay, okay, sorry. It's it's not like Houston Street versus Houston Street. Yeah. No, it's no, exactly it's a specific. Like <laughs> or is yes, it like, it is. It's, but it also has like a very no, particular meaning. Yeah. yeah. I was actually like saying that as a joke, but that is a real, that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, it, but I think the significance um, of the, the holler or sort of, 
part of the significance of the holler is that it is a place for which people live and it's very remote. Mm-hmm. So, um, and a lot of people who live in, um, in the holler feel, feel stuck, feel trapped. Um, because they don't have cars to get out to access social services to access jobs and so there is this other issue of how the holler relates to things like poverty yeah um, and backwardsness which is this sort of notion that has been related to Appalachia and mountain culture or not just in Appalachia but but all over the world mm-hmm. yeah do you have I have questions about like just basic questions about the structure of the book and like where you're drawing on some things. Um, I wanted to ask you where the source material for the text is coming in. Yeah, so um, I, um, someone introduced me to this column in this. um, So there's still a a number of family-run weekly newspapers, less and Mm -hmm. less, um, in in the region. Um, And I should say, you know, Appalachia is a a very large place. It's also, um, the, it's marked by a government initiative. So um, what is Appalachian and what is not is actually constructed by our government. And, And I think that that's kind of interesting because this mythology around Appalachia is sort of, strange and fascinating and it and it has a lot of weird kind of history that i loved learning about um and like to kind of share if these things help inform people i do think this idea that it is both a mountain range an actual mountain range the appalachians um, but it is also this government <laughs> created where they literally went county by county in these different 13 different states and they marked which counties were appalachian and which were not and they did that based on the poverty levels Really? They did, yeah. Yeah, I have a friend, Stephen Jones, who works on the criminalization of poverty, specifically in Appalachia. There is this one county in Mississippi Mm -hmm. that refused to participate because they didn't want to be considered poor. Wow. Wow. So there's like a little hole in the map. (laughs) (laughs) And are they like, we're not Appalachian? (laughs) Um, I mean, so that's the other thing I wanted to mention is that um, most people who live in Appalachia don't consider themselves necessarily Appalachian. Like yeah. so my father grew up in Appalachia, but he grew up in the Rust Belt as well. And so he knew himself as being someone who grew up in the Rust Belt, but I don't think, so people who consider themselves Appalachian, the majority of those people live in what we call central Appalachia. And that is the coal fields. And that is this area mm-hmm. that my work is mainly based in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, so, yeah. and that's where people, um, the majority of people self-identify as Appalachian. It's a very important part of their identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in other places that are considered Appalachia, then it's kind of mixed. Some people really identify yes. with that term and some people don't at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the section of the book, I think called extraction, that's where we see, I mean, I think that we see images of people who've been in the coal industry throughout the book, but I think in that section in particular, there's such a concentration on how much coal has really characterized that part of Appalachia that I found really, really beautiful and fascinating and, and the variety of responses, both in the photographs and in the text to the relationship of Appalachia to coal was just like, mind opening for me um and it really made well it just humanized so much of yeah what has people's opinions and like their feelings and the sadness and intensity of like living and working with not just like directly but also just with the history of it right of like living in this area that you feel a like maybe proud of uh this is my identity like i am from appalachia but also that you feel this kind of difficult relationship with the coal industry that's there and the sense of abandonment and like the sense of unfairness that just permeates everything. Um, 
and I thought that you did such a great job, like really bringing that to the front. Jacob and I were talking as we were coming to field projects today and we were just kind of talking about how intense everything is throughout the book. And there's a lot of like humor, like even, but even the funny That's parts are style. intense, right? <laughs> right. So like, well, no, it's not, but it's not just you. It's like, it really does it. Maybe it is you. You are the medium that has created this book. Um, but, but I do think that there's uh, a real, like, I had so much empathy and feeling of, like, similarity to so many of the people who are there in your photographs, who are there in their words in the text. Um, so maybe we could go back to the text again <laughs> and talk a little bit, just a little bit more about the text, and then maybe we'll, like, read a couple of sections of it, if that's okay. Yeah, I do want people to really know where it's from, because there is a bit of a mystery, like, did, yeah. did I write all of that? And yeah. Absolutely not. Um, yeah. I am not that brilliant. I mean, these are these are really heartfelt statements from different people, all anonymous. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a column in the um, Mountain Eagle, which is really a truly, truly wonderful family-run newspaper um, that has done so much um, in Letcher County to sort of document the Cold Wars, a lot of labor strikes, a lot of really, really difficult things that have gone on in Letcher County. Um, and so they, they play a really important role in the community. And one of the most beautiful things is this column that they have, which they actually appropriated from another newspaper in the Midwest. Um, um, in the 80s, I believe, is when they brought it into their paper. So it's this incredibly rich document dating yeah. back for a very, very long time. Um, and I wanted to mark this period that I was making this work. And I didn't know quite how to do that. And so I decided to um, I started pulling from that archive from the day I started shooting the project up until the day we published the book. Um, and so it spans this 12-year period, um, and what um, it does is something that a lot of the photographs really can't do. It speaks to a lot of the issues that, were, that have happened over the last 12 years that have really shaped um, people's lives, whether that be Black Lives Matter, the um, opioid epidemic, um, uh, the, the pandemic, um, yeah. all these different things, and they all come alive um, you know, from anonymous people in these, in these text pieces. Yeah, it felt very, very vivid reading. And and yeah. they do, I can tell that you didn't write them. I didn't think that reading it. Um, I can tell you didn't write them because the voices are so different. Um, and they're so distinct. They're so distinct. And rich. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, they're so specific. Yes. <laughs> and, they're the, and they're definitely, most of them are grievances about... Oh like, God, the petty grievances are the best. And they're, and they're, and they're not petty, right? Because they're like these really intense personal moments. I'm sorry, petty is the wrong word to use, but like uh, there's one where there's a coworker who's mad because they've been accused of hoarding the red energy drink. Strawberry. Strawberry, strawberry, strawberry. Okay, the <laughs> strawberry energy drink. And they're like, how dare you? Like you've been taking bribes from our coworkers. I'm going to expose you and like all. And But it's like such a small like interpersonal glimpse and that's all i know about and it's also an anonymous person so i'm like constructing these figures but then they're like in juxtaposition to your photographs it's a really great insight into the community and it makes it feel vivid and enterable for me or and i think that's an important part of what we were talking about about community entry earlier i don't know um but i also do feel like there's a lot of really complicated and difficult things in the book as well um Painful trauma is painful. exposed. Yeah. Um, it's funny, there is a lot of catty 
Um, and so I had to cut through a lot of that to get to the, like the real heart because yeah. um, that's just human nature, right? That's not specific to Avalanche. No, but I think that's what I mean. Is like <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, I see that happening in my office. Yeah. Took a break because we're recording in the gallery space um and we were talking about the book beforehand could we maybe go back to that and jacob i feel like we talked a little bit about where those quotes come from mm-hmm. um where you're pulling from from the newspaper um did you have questions about the structure of the book because i feel like we were like getting right yeah. into the meat of the structure of it yeah well i was wondering who, who or if you made the decision to, to break it up into these different uh chapters and why, you know, they each have a title, like the, um, what is the first one? It's like You Arrive or something. And then Exploration is the next one, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Or is it third? Yeah, no, that's totally correct. And then um, <laughs> Amazing. Exploration. Yeah. Then exploration. Extraction. extraction. Mm-hmm. Um, Mutiny. Mutiny. Yeah. Oh, and Salvation's the end. Yeah. I think that's a really great structure. But can you, I mean, we've talked about words a lot. Can you tell us about the words? Yeah. Like the narrative, also, how they structure it. Each one has yeah, a black and white. <laughs> We're looking at the book. Just a black and white uh, reproduction of a painting, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Can you tell us about that too? Both the, the titles of the sections and then the the paintings. Or yeah, the black and white. Um. So I was uh starting to amass this this collection of work, which I call basically like an archive because mm-hmm. I'm a very compulsive shooter, and so I was trying to start to build a structure for the project, which I do for any project, I, at some point I have to start to create a structure. Even if that structure doesn't exist to the public, I need it to start to process what I'm doing. Um, and so I very early on just hit on the, the three titles, which was Arrival, Exploration, and Salvation. And I, I became really interested in um, this idea of the colonial explorer and how that lineage can be traced to the contemporary road trip photography genre Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um which is a so there's like problematic aspects to obviously the colonial exploration but i think there's a lot of problematic aspects that we don't talk about to the gaze of the road trip photographer yes um and so i wanted to sort of build a connection there and i i'm like so there's this like real obsession with daniel boone in Mm -hmm. general in america but in particular in appalachia because he's sort of considered the discoverer of Appalachia, although mm. there's a lot of yeah. complex aspects to that. I mean, obviously he was not. <laughs> I think we're all very clear that that was not the case. Um, and he would never have said that he was. I think it's more just the lore around yeah. him that sort of developed that narrative. Um, but there are actually, what I love is that the the many people painted these sort of moments of Daniel Boone's life over and over again. Like different painters took them on and they, they kind of uh, connect to those titles of arrival exploration. So arrival would be um, the, the the image of Daniel mm-hmm. Boone coming over the mountain and seeing Kentucky, um, and and then there he Got points it. to it um, yeah. and is like, here it is. But he had actually already been there a few times <laughs> the time this happened. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. all just mythology. But um, then um, exploration is when things start to get a little fucking crazy, and the um, his daughter gets taken by the natives. Oh, Jesus which Christ. was a very yeah. common um, thing for explorers yeah. during that time. The, the depictions of that are so fascinating to hmm. me. Oh, I, it kind of gets shifted around because we had the extra chapters. <laughs> then I added chapters because <laughs> I just 
kept, you know, kept yeah. getting bigger. But mutiny made so much, like, there were, the, the added chapters make a lot of sense to me. That makes sense, yes. Yeah. That, right, they, they definitely were th- are there to fill out their narrative properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and mutiny is actually um, supposed to be best in Skatopia work. Yeah. So it and was it's very much about that. drug use and rebellion and the kind of violence that we talked about earlier, too. But there's also this kind of anarchistic freedom in the mutiny section that really comes through very powerfully. What's going on here? Oh, so yeah, Extraction. That, things get a little yeah. things get a little sidetracked there. Um, that is um, this really incredible uh, woman who is um, standing. Uh, she's she's standing in front of a bulldozer, um, mm. or was standing in front of a bulldozer. She's now being taken away by the, she's extracted. The police. Yes, she's extracted. And so it is. There, there's just an incredible history in Appalachia of um, labor rights and also sort of protection of land mm-hmm. um, that I think often gets overlooked and and sort of isn't the main focus of this project it is the focus of my next body of work um but i i did want to to introduce the extraction time i wanted to sort of have a symbol of that of that sort of fighting back of mm-hmm. that you know trying to stand up against this yeah. this yeah. really horrific industry or or mm-hmm. an industry that did some harm did a lot of harm yeah and it's also i mean it's one person being dragged away by a guy in, in a tie, in, a in like tie, a suit and tie, in a suit and tie with like men in black suit and tie, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and a, a state trooper. Yes, it's the trooper. man and the man. Yeah, exactly. it's two different yeah. versions of the man, and there's a, a woman in. Is that would that be a coal outfit? Would that be? Like no, no, no. She wear? she is um um she it's her land. The protest photography was taken by William Strode in 1965. The image depicts the removal of Ollie. Yeah. Combs. Ollie Combs? By the law enforcement from her land in Honey Gap, Kentucky, during a protest organized to block bulldozers from strip mining her land. That's so great that you have that in the back of the book, too. Because, like, I, I clearly I didn't do a good job looking through the book. I didn't make it to the very end, okay? But the I did read almost every page, and it's really fascinating. And we're keeping the, all of that in. Oh, I'm keeping that in. Uh, I don't care. I can admit that I've been a shit and haven't read the end uh, and well, looked at the credits. Special, there's a special prize at the yeah. end that I hope that you will get to. Okay. Maybe um, don't tell us okay. totally about it, because also for listeners, like we want you to go look at the book in person. And also, I want to experience it myself. <laughs> so hold on to it. But I want to get that, get to that part. So the, in Mutiny, is this the painting of Daniel Boone's daughter being taken away by indigenous people. Yes. Wow, that is a wild painting. There's so many of them, and they're yeah. all really incredible. Um, so it's they're depicting the same scene, but it's by multiple painters, yeah. and so that's what I really love. It's interesting that there's that... Uh, there's so many problems with that. Like, just this... Fed, uh, the fears. I mean, there's a great article about like the origins of whiteness in the 1240s um, by this woman, Madeline Cadiness, and she talks about the development of something called gynophobia, which she's drawing on this artist who wrote about chromophobia. But she's kind of talking about this fear of women and specifically white women as these like fragile objects. Um, and you see that so much in painting and culture. Like she's yeah. specifically looking at, she cites the origin of whiteness in 1240s in France during like King Louis and Queen Blanche, his mother. This is where you start seeing the depiction of pure whiteness and it's all around wanting to look sacred. And I disagree with her locating it in France specifically, but I think the time period's right. And it's right during the Crusades. Um, it's the Crusades are like the quintessential fermentation of colonialism 
this like going out into into the world and attempting to convert the world into your image of the world Mm -hmm. and the way that that's like really impacted the narratives that we tell ourselves about it as like Americans living in the United States, the way that we tell ourselves narratives about our history and background. And anyways, this image that's in the mutiny page like so speaks to this, like the fragility of the white woman that Madeline Caviness is speaking to in this article. And it's just like kind of scary <laughs> to see it like like so fetishized, right? That there's like tons of paintings of this moment. It's like this, there's so many fears wrapped up in that, in that moment. And it's a very famous sort of um, theft of the woman. And they're 14, they're very, you know, you know. Yeah. It's a, girl. it's a girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like a young woman. Yeah. Um, I mean, at the time, would have been considered a woman probably around that age, like was coming into womanhood, right? So it's both like coming into womanhood and being abducted and being abducted by people who are from a different culture than you and being like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's all of these fears that are baked into that painting, which is probably why there's so many paintings of it. And then that's like, you open up to a bunch of skate boys. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I just think like the juxtaposition too is really interesting, right? Like we open on mutiny with this, like we're, we're, there's this running historical narratives through the black and white photos that introduce the different sections and the origins of Appalachia and like all, but then like we go into it and you're like, and this is where it is now. And this is the rebellion and the mutiny now. Um, I think that's just like such a fascinating juxtaposition there. Um. And the drug addiction, I think, mm-hmm. is something that I really um, thought a lot about in terms of how to depict that. Um, because, again, a lot of the issues that are in Appalachia are issues that are in many other places all over the country and all over the world. We have had a lot of um, visual depictions of the opioid epidemic um, that I think were and are very problematic and like reinforce a lot of stereotypes. Yeah. And so I tried not to include any um, blatant drug use. And so much of the, that narrative actually comes through in the, the text, in people yes. talking about the harm that it, um, drug addiction has done to them and the harm that drug addiction has done to people that they really Yeah, love. their family. And just seeing the whole community deteriorate um, because of all the addiction, all the selling of drugs and the using of drugs. Um, and one of the things that's so interesting about um, Skatopia for me is not the actual blatant drug use that's going on there, when there is a lot of that, but it's actually that many of the kids that are coming to this place actually grew up with parents who were addicted. It's, it's that generation. Um, and so their use is actually pretty minor in comparison to what they experienced around them. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the kids who grew up you know, raised by their grandparents because you know, their parents either died of overdoses or they just disappeared for long stretches of time. And so in that way, I'm really looking at them because they are the, the product of some of the, the worst damage from that is that, you know, they lost, they lost their, their parent, they lost their, their yeah. uh, chance to grow up in the way that so many people have had yeah, and to. we read a lot of that oh, in here. Okay, good. No, no, no. I mean, <laughs> but we like there's a lot of just really intense family narratives that happen really slowly through the book. Um, or what you, we assume are, I mean, yeah. like, the text in itself. <laughs> Some things talking to each other, and it's but even and it's in like the about, photographs too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of it. All, together, all of it's a text. Yes. <laughs> 
What I love when you're talking about this, um, you know, it's, it is a photo book and there is this, you know, whole world of photo books. Those of you who are not photographers may not know about this world, but it is very obsessive. Um, and text is kind of, it's not contentious, but it's just like people just overlook it when they're yeah. looking at photo books. Yeah. Photographers looking at photo books. So I'm like, I, I'm really hopeful and I'm, I'm, what, I'm just glad to hear that you guys really engaged with the text because I'm very worried that a lot of the, yeah. the larger audience of photographers aren't going to because we're just not that's mm. not our main focus you encourage us to though by the way that you broke up the text and by the way that it feels it digestible. like it's, it's digestible um it's in small anecdotes you can jump through it if you want like it's really i think it's set up in a way that makes a lot of sense for a photography book i was gonna say also in the same way that you get a snapshot you get that little bit of text and it's another snapshot where you're like what does this mean what does this beautiful what does this mean next to this what does this mean within the context of this book how does this text you know that's a couple pages before relate to this image Um, and also I I wanted to talk to to you about there's there's several there's a Besides the chapters, you have these little drawings in here, <laughs> and um, is this is the region? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the sheep of Appalachia, and it's you know sort of marked by these different kinds of um, arbitrary um, categorizations, right? Whether it be like some sort of resource or some sort of statistic, um, and I love this sort of you know the way that we mm-hmm. cut up land, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. according to these sort of different ideas. Um, but also, I don't think people are familiar with the sheep of Appalachia. And it is a very important part Structure. of our country. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so I just wanted to have that present in the mm-hmm. book. And is that related to the drawing on the front cover? Yes, so those drawings are, um, these are surveys that were done. So, you know, there's this whole issue of like absentee landlord yeah. ownership, and that's how the coal industry mm. came in and just mm. took the land from the mountaineer. And um, so these survey, these surveyors that came in from outside of Appalachia and uh, developed these maps of the land, and that was before the railroads came in or, or as the railroads were coming in yeah. and then the coal industry. And so they're, I think they're a very important symbol of what was to come. Um, or the formation of Appalachia, and so that's why that drawing is on the cover. And so um, I, I pulled those, um, their government surveys, so you can you can download the maps, and they're beautiful oh, okay. um, yeah. maps. They're fucking stunning. And so I then traced cool. the map. Take, took me, I think it was like 40 hours each because they're so detailed. Wow. Yeah. I mean, are they drawings or tracings? I, I do like this. Yeah. <laughs> is their tra- are they tracing? You know? <laughs> no, but like still, that... I just, yeah, it's a little bit of labor, but... Well, it's a learning, it's it's like a somatic memory. You've, like, traced all of the outlines of that. Yeah, and that is actually from this incredible um, anthropologist that I really love, this experimental anthropologist. Um, There are two that are very important to me, Kathleen Stewart and then um, Michael Tosig. I'm probably saying his last name wrong. Um, But he has this whole book about drawing and memory. And um, when I was living in California getting my MFA, it was like the drawings were a way to connect to this place that I wasn't in, but I was thinking so much about. And I think drawing really has that wonderful... And I was going to make the the jump, too, between the hand. Like, this looks like it's Mm hand-drawn. And and you're saying that, you know, and that's... I I understand. (laughs) (laughs) But in the same way that, that, like, I'm looking for myself in this, that I'm looking at... That I'm also looking for myself in these. In that way where where it's like... what What you literally do with your hand is a representation of yourself. 
and then what you're as you're taking these pictures of these other people, you're you're also seeing well, yourself it, in them. Like or? the document, right? So I feel like drawing and photography have a really tight relationship with each other because of the like indexical nature of both of the things. Oh my god, I can't believe I just said that. But <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like there is this the hand and the drawing and you're talking about it as looking for yourself, which I really like. It's much more open than talking about it as documentation, right? Like looking for the artist and the hand, but also for yourself through the artist yeah. and the hand and the eye of the artist and the place and position of them. Mm -hmm. Like that relationship is really beautiful. And I think it's great that on the cover there isn't a photograph and that it's your drawing, but it's yeah. also your redrawing. You know, it's your like experiencing of the space through this other like topographers. And I'll take work. it a step further that it's it's a it's black and one other color and it's like a it's, dark brown. And it's a mess. It's like yeah, it's a mess. you know, it's like a abstract. Well, it, it's, it's topography, right? It's like it's, it's yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's not clear. It's like, a bunch of wiggly exactly shapes. What it is, <laughs> and I think I feel like that's the whole theme of your work is is where it's like <laughs> where you're like. I know who that guy is, but I don't really. But then I instantly go like, I'm being very prejudiced about what that guy looks like. Yeah, pointing and, it out. And yeah. and I've put him in that category right away. Yeah. Um, because of X, Y, and Z. Because the way he looks. Because he's. And he has certain guy, symbols in the, he, in the images as well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Jacob is looking at an. I don't even have to turn around to look at this. <laughs> it's behind me. Jacob is looking at an image of a dude with a Confederate flag behind him, who's a, who's a white guy with his shirt off. And he's um, yeah, and he's showing us his muscle like the, like the, yeah, yeah. The, it's like wait, every Rita, single Rita image Riveter. of of like macho American right wingedness that one can do in this <laughs> yes. photo, and yet like you, I do feel like you in this book open that up to people, um, and like show people their lives, you know, like show show the lives of someone who's living that. Well, I mean, I think when I look at this work, I feel like that is the. Um, feel like there's a sincere drive behind this to describe these people in a sympathetic way and in a way that's like this person has these this belief system that I maybe I personally disagree with but this person also would give me their you know their shirt off their back if they saw that I needed it and like trying to come to terms with these the hero villain complex that we talked about yes. earlier yeah and the stereotyping yeah. and, and how stereotypes are both very real, right? They're very true. Yeah. Um, but they also sort of hide a lot of the deeper nuance. Yes. They collapse meaning. And so they're problematic as well. Um, mm. But if you ignore a stereotype, then you are developing a sort of fantasy of, yes. Yes, of a place. And I think that is one of the big responses to Appalachia because of all the harm, because of all the problematic imagery, which we call poverty porn, not hillbilly porn, because that is a genre of pornography. <laughs> Just I to clarify, I'm not sure why you called it hillbilly porn. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, I actually almost brought up poverty porn earlier um, because of everything that we've been talking about. Yeah. Including yeah. hillbilly pornography. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, yes, and I love talking about I love talking about poverty porn, but I, I mean it more like I like to talk about it because I think the biggest problem with poverty porn is that we don't talk about it enough. We label things as poverty porn, but we don't actually talk about how there is no clear definition 
of poverty porn. And the reason why there is no clear definition is because the threshold for what is and what isn't is different for every single individual. And so you can't have a consensus about what that is because every person has a right to determine that for themselves. Um, and so my the work that yeah. I do is pushing at that yeah. threshold um, in order to help each individual viewer identify that for themselves. Um, and I believe that they're doing that because of their own personal histories, their relationships to poverty, um, and their relationships to images. And and I can't, I can't as a photographer define that or confirm mm -hmm. that for them. And so it, that's, that wouldn't, I wouldn't be making good work if I tried to sort of constantly try to assess and identify whether I was making images that were or weren't popular. Yeah, it would yeah, be yeah. A you don't want to dictate. Book. It would be a didactic book that says, now if you see this, you should feel bad in this way. And if you see this one, you should feel bad in that way. Right. Yeah, it's an opening, not a closed. Um, it's to start the conversation. Yes. Um, yeah. And then that conversation is meanders and goes in all kinds of different directions um, and I, I want to hear that conversation, I want to have that conversation um, and so that's why I'm trying to provoke it mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. um, I have a couple more questions about the book. Well these are the three things that I want to ask you about. One is there's a, a series of spider webs in here in each chapter. Two, that there's a series of plants, like sort of scientific photograph of a plant in each chapter, and three, I think there's self-portrait or a portrait that you are in, or you know, one of the photographs you are in in each one of the chapters. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Okay. It is, yeah, yeah. Can They're not always at the end, though. Um, there's a few hidden in the middle. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, because I was indulgent and wanted yeah. to add them in. But but the the point is that they punctuate the end of each chapter. Yeah. Mm, um, okay. So that's like the main focus of the self-portraits is that they are the last note mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> uh, over and over again. Yeah. Um, but the um, so the, the specimens are. Um, we call them like ephemera, um, the sort of plants. Uh, Those are, I press a lot of flowers and plants, um, but uh, and the, there's like a few reasons why I do that. One, it's sort of the same impulse as like documentary tradition, like of, of wanting to sort of document and preserve mm -hmm. things. And um, I, there, you know, when you're doing documentary photography and you're um, kind of like opening yourself up to strangers every day or engaging with strangers every day, you don't always feel confident or capable of doing that and so there were days when I just sit in my car and like belittle and berate myself it's very common for any most photographers who do this kind of work mm -hmm. where they just get frustrated with themselves because they you just don't feel like you can engage with people in that way because it is intrusive it is invasive and there are, and those feelings come up for everyone um, mm -hmm. making this kind of work and and so I started pressing flowers as a way to sort of calm yeah. myself down and just let myself be but I was also yeah. dealing with the same desire and impulse and yeah. like getting that out of my system and like living in that space but they're all obviously local to Appalachia then yeah I'm pulling yeah. them during like during the shooting um, same times that I'm making yeah. the work yeah yeah so that's like another beautiful little index of the landscape that's in there too yeah. um and that's like a nice little space between photography and drawing yeah yeah, yeah. and so they're all right layer you layer them all on top of each other yeah. and they they are all kind of getting at the same kind of thing this 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 deep desire to know a place and to understand it without ever really being able to do that uh, yeah and the spider webs the same thing i had this book that has been so influential to me is like made in the 70s it's about preserving nature like mm -hmm. natural objects and so there's this whole instruction like this like four page of instructions on how to capture spider webs onto paper 
So they're not drawings. They're actually, I have stolen, I have thefted spider webs from spiders in nature. Wow. Um, and you do it by, um, you spray paint, <laughs> this is awful. You spray paint the uh, spider web and then you take a piece of paper, like black paper, right? You spray paint the spider web white and you take the black paper and you swoop it <gasps> in a certain way. It's, it takes a lot of, you practice. I've ruined a lot I of spider. That's oh, awful. Uh, and then, yeah, and then you have the, the spider web captured. So once again, Holy shit, I, so it, cool. it's a it's a shadow of a real thing, not a real thing. That's a really and cool, also, insightful. I'm gonna say this is Barth's third meaning, which is Jesus the <laughs> obtuse meaning. But uh, <laughs> there's spiderwebs throughout the book that are beautiful, delicate, very seductive, but also deadly. Right. That, that it's just like and dead as and dead yeah and as you go through it's like it's like there's different kinds in different ways and they're all designed to trap you in the same way that there's like it feels it feels whatever like it feels like a like a very i'm sorry a very <laughs> a very my metaphor very flat-footed metaphor of just like you're in this space people tell you you're this is who you are your choices of getting out are only, only this sticky rope. <laughs> oh, it's so funny because the way I read that, like before you just told us about the process for them, which does really add something to like what's happening and how they function in the book. But I was like, topography and like how you navigate space and spiders. And like, you know, like I was going in a completely different direction than being trapped. I was thinking more about like, the the kind of organic forms that you were drawing and the shape of Appalachia and the like the the area of that and like the way that the spider webs have like a really important relationship there between those drawings of Appalachia the spider webs themselves the spiders doing drawing in space like there's you know like I and the landscape itself doing drawing it's in space like those I think are really beautiful and that's what I was reading in it and not so much the kind the of... The very dumb, flat-footed... No, that is not dumb or flat-footed. Wow. Uh, <laughs> you just were like, let me talk about art. So... I love that we have three very different readings. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, we don't, we're not interested in your readings. So. <laughs> no, but I feel like that's also like a huge part of what you were just talking about, which is like you're kind of bringing this book to people and then asking them, like you're very much oriented toward the reader's own response to what's happening in this book. Mm -hmm. And I do think we, all three of us come from like very different backgrounds. And so we have very different readings of what's going on in the book. So and, tell us about yours. Yeah, tell us, about, <laughs> tell us more about yours, about the spider webs. Is and... it about capturing? Um, no, I mean, I, I, I honestly just, yeah, it's about, it's about capturing. It's about that obsession. It's, it's just a mimicking. It's just, I, I, I wanted to find ways to sort of articulate the obsession and the experience of, of capturing and preserving the real, um, or the sort of failure to do so. Um, and so it's, it's much simpler on my end than it is on your end, which I, I really, I value so much that you guys have a much more beautiful take on so, But also, I like, I would, in um, all of the things that we just discussed, I would like to talk about like your role as an artist, because it does, I don't, I don't imagine you did this with the idea that you were going to put this in the book and like this, it was going to sort of, you know, sort of symbolize this thing or, or any, you know, like, uh, it seems like you're doing these things in a, in a certain sense because you're interested in them, sometimes to pass the time, sometimes just because it's, you know, like a beautiful thing that you want to try, so on and so forth. And all of that kind of comes together in your this overall voice. 
Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I, I think also like when you're the process of making this book is really different than looking at it. So like we came to it, we have really different yeah. readings because we came to it when it was complete as a book, yeah, you know? <laughs> and like, I do think that the meaningfulness is made in the juxtapositions that you've chosen in the book. Like there's a lot of meaning that comes out of that. And that's why my reading of the spider web is so different, I think, than like how you're thinking about it, because you're like, you were invested and involved in the process of making that thing become the image that I'm seeing on the page. Whereas mm -hmm. I'm just like a spider web on a black background. Oh, drawing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that they do read as drawings um, that were then photographed and that's, that's not what's going on. But no, like you can, I can tell it's a, but also they have such a strong, because they're so graphic, you know, the white and black and the linear everything. Um, and that's why it really pulls. And they're also like the inverse of the other drawings, which are black line on white yeah. so they have a tight relationship yeah I think. yeah yeah you're definitely right yeah and i was also you know looking at these photographs like the overgrown bushes and like this this for i think i mean maybe i only think of things as traps but but this kind of like <laughs> overgrowth and like going to the end of the road at the holler you know and like like getting to this point where you don't have a car and you can't get anywhere you know like i was just i was focusing like for me that those were those were chiming with that so, but I also I want to talk to you a lot about the um, the, the portraits that you that, that you are in. Yeah, the self portraits. How they were how they were they were taken, but also a lot of them are like references to other photographs, if I understand. They definitely have the the more cinematic quality than the other photographs because they they're yes. very different. Yeah. They are about a fantasy. So what they're really there for one very central purpose um, to sort of they're they're the thing they're the commentary on that relationship. The, the thing that is the core of this mm -hmm. work for me is this relationship between subjectivity and objectivity. And so what I'm trying to do by having these, these self-portraits in the work, which are much more hyper-real, or at least to me they are, I don't know, they must read, they, I think to some people they just read as just part of the narrative. Yeah. Um, but to me they're very, they're very hyper-real versions of reality, yeah. whereas the rest of the images are operating within some form of reality that is hyper-real because of my strange sort of take on the world um, but so they're there because I was very interested in the, the fantasy of objectivity um, and so I um, am really obsessed with this Christian romance novel called Christie that is takes place in Appalachia um, and it is um, you may I may feel like you're, you're like wait do I know about this I'm... and that may be because it was a miniseries on TV when I was a child, oh. and probably you were a child, oh. and um, and so it has like a, a, a like a sort of like okay. existence beyond its 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 book form. Its yes, book form. yes, <laughs> um, and it is a really incredible book. Um, and it is an incredible 900-minute miniseries. <laughs> um, and um, it is about a missionary, a young missionary, that goes into the mountains to teach the children to read and write. And this is 1912, so it would have been 100 years before I arrive as the photographer who has, we have this similar yeah. kind of concept of wanting to assert a right and wrong onto, or a system of morality onto a group of people under the guise of, you know, capitalism or, you know, a system that is very problematic and completely undoes their version of right and wrong with a, a just as problematic or even more problematic one. And um, so I really was like fascinated and obsessed with this, with this idea of the contemporary photojournalist or documentary photographer as part of the lineage of the missionary. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so I 
enact Christie, my fantasy version. And so I'm talking oh. about, yeah, yeah. You were actually correct. It, I, it, I am, I am no, ripping no. off of, of a film. It's Mini true. Series, yeah. Uh, Barbara Lennon's um, Wanda, which is one of my Got favorite it. films. Thought, yes. Because yeah. I was like, I can't just keep being Christie. I have to expand. <laughs> Um, Christy is a is a very different type of woman than Wanda, and and so I became really interested in like the sort of full spectrum mm, of, mm-hmm. of womanhood in Appalachia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you're right, I am I am ripping out scenes of that wonderful movie by um, Barbara Loudon, and I am putting it into the book. I as, me as as Wanda and me as Christy, and again the idea is that what I saw when I first started coming to the region beyond and in addition to me pretending to be Christy <laughs> is like this idea that we go to places we go to any place that is not a place that we're familiar with with this idea of what it is mm-hmm. and that idea comes from films it comes from books it comes from right lore or whatever we we sort of um, appropriate from culture and that literally collides with the actual reality that we experience and see of that place and that is what the work is and I think that that is why the work is so interesting to me is that collision and so I just wanted to make sure that the book it it, embedded in that is a discussion of that yeah that's it that's what I thought too that it was like a once again turning around the camera on yourself somehow Mm -hmm. you know what I mean not like I was thinking about your your book, and I was I was like, oh, I wonder if there is a way of when you take a picture that it takes a picture of you at the same time. Yeah, because you talked about teaching someone to take photographs, and then you're in a photograph, and that photograph feels really different than the you as Christy or Wanda. It, those are narrative. very different operations. They feel yeah. really like the lighting is super different. The kind of well, these ones are almost there's acting. They are. They're, they're, they're very not... staged. Like yeah, but but still, like the the self portraits of you that act as those kind of touchstones, asking questions about objectivity. They do feel more like a drama than a documentation. Um, and obviously, mm-hmm. documentation can is like equally staged. Whatever. But right. Like, you so know, that's I, the sort of thing that I'm trying yeah. to say. Like, hey, hey, just when you think you understand a place because I have provided or given yeah. it to you, like the title, that's not true at all. You're, I'm yeah. giving you a fantasy because it's my perspective. Yeah. And my... also everyone acts for the camera too. Like when, yes. when the camera is there, it is a mediator of action in a lot of ways. As hard as you try to make the camera not mediate things it, it changes and even if the camera isn't i am in the way that yes. i'm selecting the image that you know is in the final yeah yeah viewing space that, that one image out of the 20 that you took yeah. at that one yeah that okay one so maybe the final question that we should ask you i know that you have this upcoming book signing but do you have any other things coming up that you want to tell people about um, yeah, I have two shows that are really I'm really excited about. One is in Italy. They're both the the, the this work um, in mm-hmm. exhibition form. The project in the book. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the one thing I love about photography is that the books are, t- are so important and taken mm-hmm. so seriously as one way of showing the work. But then I, I think the exhibition space is this whole other mm-hmm. wonderful animal and way to sort of engage a viewer with the work. And, and I treat them both very individually, um, but then of course they overlap and connect. And so yes, I'm bringing the work to Italy to a wonderful photography festival this summer. And then um, 
where I live, it's, it's very important to have this work represented in, in Appalachia itself because the conversations need to be happening about the region inside and outside. Um, and so I really try to balance that. And so I am showing the work um, at the inaugural Tennessee Triennial. Cool. <laughs> yes. Yes. At the Institute of Contemporary awesome. in Chattanooga. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. Cool. And Congratulations. Yeah. Both of those. And also there's, a, there's another aspect of the book that you had told me about before, which is that you um, are donating uh, books to libraries. Yeah, so um, this is not something that I try to hide or um, I'm always interested in the sort of high and low of like the way that images sort of disseminate and this is a art book. It, it is it is an $85 art book um, and so you know but it's a it's an art book about poverty and so that is incredibly problematic <laughs> yeah. and so many of the people who are um, without um, the kind of means to spend $85 or people that I would really like to engage with the work and see the work. Um, and so um, my publisher was kind enough to donate 50 books. So every county that I photographed in, um, I'm going to be donating books to the public library. Um, it's a gesture. It's at it's least a gesture. a gesture, right? But the problem is it's it's expensive to make this book. There's been, you know, like it's all of the problems that come up around that. Yes. Yeah, there isn't a real profit margin on yeah. the book, but but the, the bigger problem is that it's not accessible to everybody. Yeah. It yeah. just isn't. Yeah. Um, and it was never going to be. I knew upfront that the book was going to be expensive in a way that would pro prohibit a, a large group of people from being able to own the work. Yeah, and experience the yeah. work. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the library is a good yeah. way of. It's just being literally available. a tiny yeah. gesture. And doing a show at this triennial, right? Like, there's there's lots of ways to, like, maybe give spaces and opportunities to people to come see the work. Yeah, and yeah. again, you just ha I have to keep finding new ways to do yeah. that um, mm -hmm. and, and have that party conversation. Bus. Oh, I party love bus. the idea of a party Take bus. The, a fucking go, go, party bus with your work. No. Yes. Well, I, yeah, Jesus, that's you're an idea. You're a genius. You're a genius. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Thank you, Stacey. Yeah, Stacey, this was an awesome <laughs> conversation. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for doing it while the gallery was open and we had to take breaks and like talk to people. And, and thank you for being yeah. open and uh, and as honest as we think you've been. <laughs> <laughs>just had an awesome interview with Stacy and we're going to talk about some of our recommendations to go see this week. So the first thing that I would say that you should go see is the opening that I and Jacob went to last night and that was at Amos Enos in or Amos Eno. Amos Eno in 56 Bogart Street. If you don't know the 56 Bogart Street building, it is filled with galleries and then studios on other floors. Um, it's a great, very welcoming space for artists to throw back to the beginning of our conversation today. We went to see Candace Jensen, Thomas Little, and Coleman Stevenson, who are in this three-person show called Recalling the Chimera. And basically, if you're interested in anything related to the witchy, the occult, the ritualistic, the scientific intersection between art and living organisms. They are having another performance that's happening. Um, they have the Ides of May full moon ritual. That's a virtual 
ritual that you can attend yourself. That's on Sunday, May 15th. We absolutely loved going to the show. The work is really quite amazing. Uh, you really should take some time and spend time with Thomas Little's work, where he's using these slime molds to create organic patterns on paper, basically asking the mold to follow uh, a pathway along the paper as it looks for more food. He starts with this packet of oats in the center that he soaks with an, a red iron oxide pigment. The slime mold eats the pigment and becomes red and then leaves these beautiful red trails across the paper. There's also ground up guns um, that are magnetic in there. There's a lot going on. Um, and then also Candace Jensen makes these totally amazing, very medieval inspired calligraphy pieces and books, and they all have these very, very diverse practices um, where they're both making physical objects, but then also making things like poetry. In, in the case of Coleman Stevenson, making poetry, um, creating tarot decks that Coleman is selling in the back in the commissary area, so don't miss the back section of Amos Eno either. Um, what about you? What else did you think people should see this week or that you've seen? Um, well. Oddly enough, I'm going to give a shout out to Jeffrey Deitch Gallery. <laughs> <laughs> um, a bunch of our friends that have that we have shown um, at Field Projects at Field Projects mm -hmm. are in this show. It's called Wonder Woman, and it's curated by Kathy Wang. I mean, just quickly, Dominique, there, Chitra. Well, it's Melissa. Maybe tell people their full name. <laughs> Melissa Joseph, Dominique Fung. Who else do we know who's here? Tammy. Tammy Nguyen. Yeah. Gahi, uh, Gahi, Gahi Park, who yeah. went to Hunter at the same time that I did. Yeah, and we had you cool. put her in that who show. Who all make like really amazing work. Lily yeah. Wong. I mean, everyone on this list is Sahana like pretty. Ramakrishna. Yeah, Sahana. We gave so we gave and Hiba too. Hiba's and Hiba. in here. Yeah, yeah, Hiba Shabazz. Uh, you know, like lots of people that we love are here who make amazing work, uh, yeah. but who are also just like kind of great people to go see and meet if you can. When so does that open? Well, I think that opens on Saturday, May 7th. Okay, so it'll be open so by the it'll time be, you hear this. Yeah, so just go and see it. Uh, and it's open through when? June 25th. Cool, so you have tons of time. This podcast will come out on Wednesday, so if you're listening, it's Wednesday or beyond. And we're already <laughs> in May, which is fucking wild to me. Yeah. Yeah, there's also like a ton of fairs this week. I'm sure everyone listening to this already knows this, but like Future Fair, The Independent, right? Mrs. Gallery's there. Yeah. Uh, we Mrs. love yeah. Mrs. Gallery, Sarah and Tyler, who run that together. Yeah. What else? Are there any other fairs worthy of... Oh, Freeze. Yes, Freeze. Johanna and Kara um, <laughs> have some books at Printed Matter at Freeze. Yeah, so that's Johanna Hare and Kara Marsh-Scheffler, who worked on a book together, which is currently at our gallery space uh, up through the May 21st. And yeah, and that also reminds me, just a final note, I'm sure that we've already said this probably a bunch of times, but please do check out Stacey Kranitz's book signing that she's doing on Friday the 13th, which is yeah. this week. It's very soon, so go check it out. Uh, you can meet with her and chat with her and talk about what we talked about in the interview, whatever. Ask her questions about her practice, um, but also just get to actually look at the photographs that we just talked about, which I think is a really important thing for you to go do. Um, obviously, Dashwood. you can also check our, our Instagram. So sorry, it's at where? Dashwood Books. Dashwood Books. Dashwood Books. Go to Dashwood Books on Friday. 
Okay. All right. All right. I think we did a good job. Right. This was a rough, rough day for both of us, so we've done well. Give me the actual. Yeah. High five. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next Wednesday. Goodbye. Bye. NASCAR. The car just goes in circles. What do you watch? People watch NASCAR. I mean, yeah. It's like they're going super fast and they're like bumping each other and stuff. I get that there's like a, they're doing a little kind things of arts and stuff. Yeah, so. I would like to drive the car. I don't want to watch it. I know. I know. It's because like, my dick is too big. It's like, well. <laughs> I hope you're recording. I am. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's going to be the end. No, it's but, not. Yes, it is. It's because my dick is too big. <laughs> no, I'm definitely taking that out. Okay.